0: Uh, So please open your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be focusing on verse 8. And I want to start by saying, look, it it goes without saying that our world is awash in anger. Everywhere you go, you, you encounter anger. Just get into your car and drive on the road. Go to the store. Turn on the TV. Hop on social media. You will see people who are angry. People who are angry about politics, people who are angry about masks, people who are angry about their boss or their job or their spouse or their kids or their dog, people who are angry about sports. All around, we see anger. And I wonder, how much of your week was spent being angry at someone or something? If you were to sort of just take stock of your week and kind of list out, here are all the things that I have been angry about this past week, as I was reflecting I think I was angry at the internet for being slow, my TV for not working, my phone for locking up. I was angry at my dog because she was knocking things off a table and spilling things. Uh, I was angry at a shoe that got in the way of a door I was trying to open. I was angry at a stoplight. I was angry at people who drive slow in the left lane. Can I get an amen? (laughs) And angry at myself and angry at Mindy at some point. And so as I sort of just take stock of my week, I spent a lot of time being angry at something. And I think what we need to admit, whether we think our anger is justified or someone else's anger is justified or some group's anger is justified, what we need to be honest about is this. Our anger does nothing less than damage and destruction to our relationships. Like, there is something uniquely powerful and destructive about anger In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if we harbor anger in our hearts, it's the same as murder. Like, we don't have to actually physically murder somebody, but if there is anger, and that anger is being expressed at other people, it is as if we are killing them. Like, we will kill relationships. We will wreck and damage and destroy other people. And so let me ask you this. How is your anger affecting your relationships? Like how is the anger you feel in your heart affecting your relationship with your spouse or with your kids or with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, or your boss? How is it affecting with just the average person you come into contact with? Because here's what we also need to be honest about. As much as we see anger on TV and on social media, we see anger out there, and we say, yeah, that's a problem out there. Hey, look, it's also a problem in here because it's a problem in here. And so... As we reflect on this idea of anger, I wonder if you would be honest this morning if I were to ask you to raise your hand, which I'm not going to do, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, hey, who would admit that my anger is having a ruinous effect on my relationships? It's actually doing damage and destruction. Like, I know how my anger has affected those closest to me. I want us to be honest this morning. I want us to just be real before the Lord. Like the Lord who sees everything and already knows everything. Can can we lay our hearts before him in honesty this morning and recognize the ways we've been formed in anger? The the way we have been formed personally and our relationships have been formed in anger because here's what happens. When we are honest, there's hope. There's, There's hope for us. When we are honest, there's hope for renewal and reformation because when we are honest, then that puts us in a place to receive. Receive grace and receive mercy and receive transformation, and that is where we're going to go this morning. And so much like last week, I want to just structure the talk uh, on two main points. First, how we've been formed in anger, and second, how we can experience reformation and be reformed in Christ. And so talking about being formed in anger, I want to look at two things. I want to look at the root of anger and then the fruits of anger. And so just like any other sin, if we're going to actually experience gospel transformation and gospel renewal, then we need to get to the roots. So often we treat our anger, deal with our anger kind of on the surface level, so we'll deal with it more circumstantially. So it'll be, hey, I got to resolve this problem, or I got to remove myself from this situation so I'm not angry anymore. Or, or maybe we'll deal with it um, physically, and so maybe I'm tired and so I need to take a nap, or maybe I'm hungry and I need some food, or maybe my hormones are off and so I got to fix that. Or maybe it's psychologically, I'm under a lot of stress, and so I got to do some things to relieve my stress, or emotionally, maybe I'm sad or I'm upset, and so I got to deal with that emotionally. So, well, all of those things are good, all those things are necessary, but look, none of those things are a path to the actual root of the problem. None of those things are the path to gospel reformation, and so we need to deal with this at the level of the roots. And look, it may not seem like Paul identifies the root of anger in Colossians 3, but he actually does. And to help us see that, I actually want to pull in the book of James to give us a little bit more of an insight into the nature of anger. And so James treats anger with a little more focus and a little more in-depth. And so James chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3, this is what he writes. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. What is the root of our anger? What does James say? Passions that are at war within us. Desires that are unmet. Covetousness. Any of that language sound familiar? It's what we looked at last week. It's the exact language the Apostle Paul used in Colossians 3, 5 through 7. Passions. Evil desires, covetousness, that is what is at the root of our anger. And so our anger, whatever else may be going on circumstantially or physically or emotionally or psychologically, our anger comes from our desires and our covetousness. These things overtake us. We want something so badly. We desire something so strongly. And when we don't get it, we become angry. And we don't have to be taught this, right? We don't have to be taught this. Parents, think of your kids from the very earliest age. When they didn't get something that they wanted, how do they respond? Peace and patience? Wisdom and insight to say, you know what, my ultimate joy and satisfaction isn't in this toy, and so I don't need to be angry that I don't have it? Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) No, they get angry and they throw a fit. Now, don't judge them because you do the same thing. From the beginning, we are born into sin, and we have a heart and a disposition towards anger when our desires and the things we covet are not satisfied and not met. Or to use the language from last week, here's what anger reveals. Anger reveals our idolatry. Anger reveals our idols. Anger reveals and exposes what has become most important to us, whether in a moment or whether in life overall. It, it shows us what we must have in order to experience joy and satisfaction or identity and meaning or success and fulfillment or comfort and control. Anger exposes our idolatry. And is so often the case, anger exposes a good desire gone corrupt. As James 4.3 points out, when, when anger is the result of unmet desire, what it shows us is that our desires aren't as good and noble as we thought. That, that we actually desire those good things for wrong reasons, that we've made it about us. And so we can see this through a spectrum of different things. And so consider some of these. Parents, the desire you have for your kids to be obedient and to be behaved, that, that, that's a good desire. But when they're not do you run to anger to make it happen? Because here's what such anger reveals, that it's actually not about your kids walking in goodness and faithfulness and righteousness before the Lord. It's actually about you. And so that could be, maybe you have made comfort and control in idol, and so you've got to have your kids behaving because you don't want to deal with the mess of disciplining and discipling them. Or perhaps you've, you, you've sort of staked your identity on being this good parent with kids who are well-behaved and you want to be seen as the good family and so you've made an idol out of that. Or consider this one, desiring your spouse to show you love and respect or, or to be emotionally engaged or to pursue spiritual maturity or to help with the chores and the household tasks or to be responsible with money or to be present with your kids. Look, all of those things are good desires. But when your spouse fails you, when they don't do those things, do you run to anger, whether explosive anger or passive-aggressive anger, in order to try to make those things happen? Because here's what that anger reveals, that it's not actually about your spouse walking in goodness and righteousness and being responsible, it's not about them, it's about you. It shows that you want them on your agenda. You want them to do what you want them to do so your life is comfortable. So if I can be honest here about the way this plays out for me, so often my anger directed at Mindy relates to her anxiety. And some of you know her story and how she has fought that. And so what I tell myself is this, is I don't want Mindy's anger to overtake her and ruin her. I don't want it to wreck our lives. And so, you know what? I've got to be angry to sort of snap her out of it and get her to see that she's wrong and she's being anxious. But what does that anger expose Exposes that I've made peace an idol, that I've got to have comforts and peace at any cost. And so I'll try to use anger to get there. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. I wonder if any of you can identify those dynamics in your marriage. You you, you know what? You want a comfortable and secure life. You want to feel in control of your life and in control of your marriage. You, You want good things to happen so you can be seen to have a good marriage look, you don't want to carry the weight and the burden of knowing your marriage is a mess. And so you will go to anger to make things happen. We don't have time to deal with burden and mess. We don't have time to carry that weight. We got to get things fixed right now. And so I'm going to run to anger. Or how about this? Desiring success, whether through work or whether getting a promotion or whether gaining wealth and material comfort. Like, in some ways, those things are good. They're not bad. But what happens when they don't happen, when the success doesn't come or you get passed over for a promotion or you don't make as much money as you thought you would? Do you get angry? Because you know what that anger reveals? That you've made those things an idol, that they are the thing you believe you must have in order to have meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction in life. Or maybe you desire to grow in some way in character. Like you want to grow and become a more mature Christian. You want to grow in faith and love or service, whatever it may be. You desire a good thing. But what if you don't get that thing? What if you don't grow at the pace you think you want to? Or you, you don't overcome that sin as fast as you'd hoped? Do you get angry at yourself? Do you beat yourself up? Do you speak uh, discouraging words to yourself? Guess what? That anger reveals that you've made this like, better version of yourself an idol, that, that you've made performance the thing by which you base your value and identity. Or maybe you're waiting for something good to come your way and you've been waiting for a long time. Maybe it's for a new job, or maybe it's for a spouse, or maybe it's to have kids. Maybe it's for the end of sickness and suffering. Boy, I cannot wait until this pandemic is over. But what happens when it doesn't come? What happens when you keep waiting? Do you become angry? Do you become cynical? Do you get angry at other people? Do you become angry at God? Because what that anger exposes is you've made those things an idol. You've desired them so strongly. You believe that if your life is going to have joy and satisfaction or meaning and purpose, or you're going to have comfort and control, any of those things, you have to have that good thing you're waiting for. Or how about this one, finally? Do you desire a more just and good and equitable society? Do you want to live in a society that doesn't silence your voice and doesn't disregard you and, and reflects the values that you have? Hey, that is good. You should want that. But when things don't go your way politically or culturally, do you become part of the angry mob? Friends, here's what that exposes. That anger shows us that it's not about righteousness and justice, but rather we want the system to benefit us. We don't like the loss of control and comfort. We don't want to suffer under a culture that doesn't value the same things we value. So wherever you find yourself on those spectrum of things, here's what we need to be honest about. Whatever else our anger is, whatever else is causing it, at its root, it comes down to selfish idolatry. And so is it no wonder that our culture and our society is angry as it is? In a culture where self-determination and self-expression and self-fulfillment are the highest right and virtue of our society, it's no wonder we've become so angry. Because we make demands and we give full expression to our desires and our idols. And when we don't get what we want, we become angry. And then here's what else we do. We justify it. We tell ourselves, my anger is righteous. My anger is good. I have a right to be angry. And here's what scripture does. It pulls open our heart, pulls back the veil, and reveals this. The anger, of God, the anger of men does not bring about the righteousness of God. Look around you. Your anger is not bringing about righteousness. Your anger is not bringing about goodness It's wrecking things. It's destroying things. If that is the root of anger, we now need to consider the fruit of anger. And so often, the root of anger comes out in the fruit of our speech. As Paul writes in verse 8, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. And so the way this sentence is constructed That anger and wrath and malice are closely connected to slander and filthy language, which are sins of our mouth. And so what we need to recognize here is Paul is connecting certain sins together for emphasis. He does the same thing in Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. So Paul isn't saying the only way that anger and wrath and malice come out is our mouths, but he is emphasizing, he's focusing on the way our mouths give us expression to our anger. And so that's what I want to focus on for us this morning as well. You know that little saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Absolute lie. Absolute lie. I know it's well-meaning, but it's an absolute lie our words have so much power. As Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And then also listen to how James describes the power of the tongue in James 3, verses 5 through 8. Though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how small a fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's called not pulling any punches. (laughs) James is honest about the damage our tongue can do. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. How are your words giving expression to your anger? How are your words doing damage to your relationships? Do you shout and yell your words? Do you give expression to your anger by the decibel level of your voice? Or maybe you burn cold. And so you speak words that are calm and cutting and biting and bitter, but boy, your anger just seethes through those words. In your anger, do your words cut down and tear down and criticize and condemn? Does your spouse, your friends, your kids, your family, your co-workers, your boss, the person at the grocery store, the person on the road who cuts you off, do they carry the wounds and the scars of your angry words? I wonder... If those closest to you are haunted by your angry words, haunted and continually reminded by your words ringing in their ear that you're stupid or or that they're lazy or that they're not good enough or that they'll never change or that you wish you had married somebody else, do those closest to you walk on eggshells because they're afraid of your words? Do you slander others? Do, do you slander? Do you tear down behind your spouse's back or behind your kids or a friend or someone else in the church or a coworker or a boss? Do you speak ill behind their back in the name of talking and being real about sin? I wonder this: if, if we were to take your social media feed and put it up on the screen, would we see biting in Cutting and bitter words that spew forth at other people in the world? Would we see anger in your social media feed? I wonder, do you speak cynical and angry words? Are you constantly complaining and pointing out the negative in yourself and others in the world? Do your words lack hope and and do you spread hopelessness with your words? Or how about this one? Are your words full of filthy language? Now, we might not necessarily equate swearing and filthy language with anger, but there's a connection. Because here's what swearing and and filthy language exposes. It exposes cynicism, and that is anger. Swearing, crude or filthy language, shows that we have a lack of respect and reverence for that which is good that we have little hope that there's good in the world, that there isn't things that are sacred and good that we should actually guard and protect. Oh, we say we're keeping it real, but what we're really doing is degrading. How do you use your words? Do your words expose your anger? Friends, if life and death are in the power of the tongue, then our words have a powerful effect in the lives of others and ourselves. Like through our words, we give voice to and we strengthen that idolatry and anger in our hearts. Through our words, we are more and more formed in anger and our relationships are more formed in anger. And sadly, this can be the same in the church as well. It is to our shame, and I speak broadly about the church, this should break our hearts, that too often the church can be the angriest of communities, that we bite and devour one another That we harm each other with our words. And so, whether it's the world or whether it's in the church, here's what we all have to come to grips with and we all have to take account of, as we saw last week. Because of our sin, because of our idolatry, because of our anger, because of the destruction that we have unleashed on this world, God's judgment is coming. God's judgment comes onto the world because of our sin, because God is not indifferent to our sin. God is righteous and he is holy. He has a righteous anger. His anger is good and it is righteous. He has every right to be angry at our sin because of what we have done. And he is going to bring judgment. Look, Jesus said that our angry and murderous hearts deserve judgment. And so we have to be honest both about the judgment that we sit under and also the hell that we've created. We need rescue, do we not? We need to be rescued from our anger. We need to be rescued from judgments. We need to be rescued from the ways that we have been formed in anger. And here is the good news of the gospel for us, friends. Friends. Here's the hope that we have this morning is though we have been formed in anger, we can be reformed in Christ. And so for us to see how we can be reformed in Christ, I want to point out two things here as well. How does this happen? Well, first we kill the roots and then we put away the fruits. We kill the roots and we put away the fruits. To be reformed, the root of anger must be killed. The power of idolatry in our hearts must be defeated, and this doesn't happen through our own efforts. This doesn't happen through better discipline, better communication strategies, better stress relief strategies. No, we we can't do this in our own power. We can't set ourselves free from our own sinful hearts. At, At its root, anger is a sin problem, and so we cannot save ourselves. But this is where the gospel steps in. This is where the power of God through Jesus Christ comes to us. We can be rescued. We can be saved. We can be transformed. As we say and proclaim every single week and as we remind ourselves every single week, God in love and in grace sends Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ to this world to live a perfect life, a life you and I could not live, a life free of idolatry and sinful anger. And he does that for you. And not only does Jesus come and live a life, he also dies on our behalf. He dies on a Roman cross to take all of our sin, to take the full punishment and righteous wrath of God on himself. But he doesn't just die. He's also resurrected to life, resurrected in victory over sin and over evil and over death. And he's not just resurrected, he also ascends into heaven as the glorious, reigning and resurrected king. And he sits at the right hand of God, completing his work as our advocates. And here is the promise of the gospel. Those who put their trust in Jesus, those who turn from their sin and by faith believe in Christ and come to him as savior and as king, new life in Jesus. Full and complete and lasting forgiveness given a new identity, and welcomed as a son or as a daughter, loved and cherished by God the Father. The power of sin, the power of anger that you were enslaved to has now been broken. Resurrection power now lives in you. The Holy Spirit is renewing you in the image of Jesus, an image of goodness and kindness and love and mercy and service and sacrifice. And here's the hope that we have. For those who are in Christ, we walk in hope that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to put an end to the sin, an end to the anger, an end to the dysfunction, an end to the evil, and he's going to restore and renew and reconcile all things in him, as Colossians tells us. And so friends, through Jesus Christ, the roots of our sin and anger is killed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> through Jesus Christ as Colossians 3:3 3, 3 reminds us we have died to sin do you want renewal do you want to experience reformation then look to Christ do you want to experience full forgiveness for all the ways that your anger has wrecked and destroyed and ruined relationships Look to Jesus Christ. Do you want the power to now walk in righteousness and goodness and love and mercy and compassion? Look to Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. Put your faith in him. That is how the root of sin and anger are killed in us. And so now, for those who are in Christ, we put away the fruits, as Colossians 3.8 tells us. So what does this look like? So as we kind of round this out, I want to give us four categories of what it means to put away the fruit of anger in our lives. The first is we walk in humility. Look, so much of our anger comes from selfishness and entitlement. Like we don't get what we want when we want it, so we get angry. People don't get on our agenda and meet our desires and our needs, and so we get angry. We need, we need to humble ourselves, humble ourselves before God and declare, I am not god my desires are not god they are not the center of all things we need not only confess our sinful anger but we need to confess our pride look humble people are not angry people humble people are not angry people and so through worshiping together through being in the word through prayer May Christ become bigger and more glorious to us. May God the Father become more holy and bigger in our eyes. May we look to him and in the midst and in his presence be humbled. May his love and his mercy and his grace and his glory humble us as we put away anger. We walk in humility. Second, we cultivate hope and joy. Look, anger not only exposes selfishness, it also exposes desperation and cynicism. Like, we resort to anger when we feel like we have lost not only control, but we also have lost hope. When we see that the world is just a dark and broken place, we become angry. In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul tells us something actually kind of shocking if you think about it. He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Be angry and do not sin. And so anger in and of itself is not sinful. Like there are some things that should make you angry. Sin, wickedness, injustice, those things should make you angry. And, and he also says, hey, don't let sin fester or don't let anger fester in your heart, deal with it. Don't let it sit there and stew so Satan can come in and tempt you to sinful anger. And so we can be angry and not sin. How in the world does that happen? Well, humility. Again, humility, where we make it about God's righteousness and glory and not about us. But here's also how that happens. By standing in hope. By standing in hope. More and more, I'm learning this, that if I can stand in hope, then I don't have to run to anger. Like, if I can stand in hope, if I believe that in spite of the sin and the pain and the mess and and the ugly, and the brokenness, and the disappointment, and all that is going around me that could make me angry, that I believe God's power is at work, that I believe that he who began a good work in me will complete it, that if I believe I've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that one day Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, I'm going to be glorified, and he's going to renew and restore all things. If that's the trajectory of my life, if that's the hope that I have, then I can stand in the midst of that pain and that sadness and the mess and the sin and I don't have to run to anger. I know God's power is at work and so I have hope. Also, when Jesus is my joy, when I'm satisfied in him, then in the midst of sin and suffering and conflict and mess and pain and disappointment, I can still have joy and I don't need to become cynical. And so, friends... Hear me, hope-filled people are not angry people. Joy-filled people are not angry people. And so through worship, through being in the word, through prayer, through spending time with our Lord, let us be filled up in hope. Let our hope in Christ grow more and more and just see the overwhelming, glorious hope that we have. May our joy in Jesus, because in his presence is the fullness of joy, grow more and more and more as we put away anger. So we walk in humility. We cultivate hope and joy. Third, we find comfort. Like Anger exposes selfishness. It exposes desperation. It also exposes pain and grief. Mindy recently came across this quote that I I thought was really profound. It said, I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her real name was grief. How often is the anger that you and I express really about sadness and pain and disappointment that we're experiencing? Now, this doesn't minimize the idolatry does it doesn't minimize the ways that our, idol- that, that our pain and our sadness grab onto our idols and make us angry. But look, that pain, that sadness, that disappointment, it's real. And so the question becomes, what do you do with it? Do you run to anger, which is an attempt to grab for control in the midst of disappointment and sadness? Do, do you run to anger to try to control your circumstances and control other people? Do, do you go to anger because you think, man, if I have that kind of control, then I'm going to feel comforted? Or do you humble yourself and be open and honest about your pain and do what Jesus called us to do in the sermon on the mount and mourn Jesus said blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted look it's so much easier to be angry isn't it so much more so much easier to be angry rather than sad and disappointed it's so much easier to try to grab for control in our anger because if we sit in our sadness and our disappointment here's what we say I can't control this. This hurts and there's nothing I can do about it. But what happens when we let go of that control and we seek comfort from the Lord? We actually experience comfort. Like God himself comforts us. His presence is with us. As Thomas reminded us this morning, he takes us by the hand, grabs us by the face, and he looks in our eyes and says, I love you. I'm with you. Real, lasting soul-satisfying comfort. That happens when we mourn. If we run to anger, here's what we miss out on, comfort from the Lord. Friends, comforted people are not angry people. And so through worship and through the word and through prayer, there's a a theme here, right? (laughs) Repeating myself, but through these things, as we feast on Jesus, as we spend time in the presence of Jesus, may we experience his comfort more and more and more and put away anger. And so we walk in humility. We cultivate hope and joy. We find comfort. And finally, we speak encouragement. If life and death are in the power of the tongue, and let us use our words not for anger but for encouragement. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 4.29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Look, we can convince ourselves that we need to use anger to get people to change. Man, if I speak to them in anger, then they'll get their act together, then they'll turn away from their sin. And yes, sometimes we have to speak hard, direct words, but that is different than speaking angry words. Look, angry words tear down. Encouraging words build up, as Paul calls us here in Ephesians 4. And so let us be those who speak encouragement, even when we have to confront, even when we have to say things that are hard. Here's something else I'm learning more and more. I'm learning that not just rebuke helps people turn from sin and turn to Christ, but encouragement is. You realize you can't encourage someone enough that, that we think, man, the only way people are going to learn and turn from their sin is if we're on them and we're hard on them. But, but I'm learning, actually, if you encourage people and then keep encouraging them, that's actually more motivation to turn from sin. And so let us, rather than speaking angry words, rather than speaking cynical words, let us speak hope-filled and joy-filled words. Even in the midst of conflict, let us speak encouraging words. And patient and kind words that will spur people to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Look, encouraged people are not angry people. Encouraged people are not angry people. So let us seek encouragement in the Lord as we commune with Him and as we worship Him. And then through His grace, let's speak encouragement to one another. Oh, friends, what a testimony! Who would not want to be part of a community that abounds in encouragement to one another, that overflows in encouragement to one another? What would it mean for First City Church to be a church of encouragement? And in that encouragement, yes, we're turning from sin and we're turning to Jesus and we're growing in godliness day by day, but it's through encouragement. So, friends, in the midst of angry people in an angry world, let's be those who look to Jesus for our salvation Let's be those who look to Jesus for our power to be reformed. Let us be humble before God. Let us cultivate hope and joy in Jesus. Let's find comfort in the Lord. And then let, let our mouths proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus and build other, others up in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.